Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Like a lot of you, I find myself, well, I won't speak for y'all, but I find myself getting a little irritable and getting a little reactive sometimes and um, not having a whole lot of focus sometimes or a whole lot of patience. So um, I'm trying to hold that with some compassion and some room and some space and just kind of honor that rather than fighting against it all the time. Uh, and so what that means, there's a reason I'm talking about this. For the, What that means for this week's Torah portion is that I could not talk about Pinchas. I just can't. So normally, you know, we hold difficult tasks texts. We hold difficult moments. We try to appreciate the author's perspective, why they would have written the story, what the story is about. Um, So we are not going to talk about Pinchas. Um, All I will say about Pinchas, so for those of you who don't know, Pinchas is the zealot who who finds uh, an Israelite man and a Midianite woman having intercourse in the tent of meeting, and, um, and he kills them both as an act of um, religious zealotry, if you will. Um, The only thing I want to say, because we're just going to look at the very last part of that story, because that's the beginning of our triennial division this week. The only thing I'll say about this story is that, um, which I don't think I really appreciated before, but all the talk we've been having about the Mishkan and the priests and the way that the priests are charged with guarding that space, right? Guarding the sacred space is that Pinchas Pinchas is a priestly text. Half of it is J-E, half of it is P. Remember, half of it is the Elohist and the Yahwist version, the old version. And half of the story of Pinchas, the second half of that story, including his punishment of that or his you know, act on behalf of God by killing them, that is a P source. That's the priestly source. If you think about it, this is less about killing people who are having sex or stepping out of Israelite, blah, 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 being with Midianites who they're not supposed to be with and worshiping other gods. It is more about the couple having desecrated the sacred space of the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting. I'm not saying it's going to help Carol Kleinman live with this text. It's not. But it does help us explain what the priestly agenda of having that be the punishment, it helps us understand how this story got written, right? Because anybody who encroaches on the sancta who's not a priest is put to death. So this was the logical capital punishment. This was, you know, and like I've said, we all have capital punishment in this country still, um, that that was the understanding. It was capital punishment for encroaching on the sancta. So I just want to kind of leave us with that that idea and agenda of the P writer rather than how we usually tend to think of it, which is about sex and sex with non-Israelites and sex with Midianite women who will tempt those men towards their gods. Yes, that's there. That's certainly present for the priestly writer as a concern for sure, but that's not the reason for the zealotry being approved of. The reason is that if you encroach on the sancta, the penalty is death, period. So with that, so so anyway, so we're not going to spend time on Pinchas, and then we're not going to spend time on the census, and then we're not going to spend time on the rest of the stuff. We are going to go down a very interesting rabbit hole. Um, Hopefully you'll find it interesting. It's It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about something that most of us don't know anything about. So let's go to the actual text. All right. So here's Pinchas, the beginning of uh, the chapter 25 of the Book of Numbers of um, Bamidbar. Something new and different, Vaidaber denial Moshe Limor. God says to Moshe, saying, Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aharona Kohen, Heshiv et Hamitim Yisrael Bekanov. So Pinchas, son of Elazar, son of, the, of Aaron the priest, right? So he's the grandson of Aaron. This is the grandson of the high priest has turned back my wrath from the Israelites by displaying among them his passion for me so that I did not wipe out the Israelite uh, people in my passion. Remember, we talked about kinah, jealousy. Remember that God is a jealous God. We talked about God having rights to our exclusive loyalty. And that means also to what's in the limits and outside the limits. We have, God can be kinah, can be jealous 
when we don't abide by that. And remember, we talked, we looked at what looked like a crazy interpretation by Arthur Waskow of this word kina, jealousy. And if you'll recall, he translated it as passion, the impassioned God. Um, so what happens when you turn, a, turn away from your passion, your partner in passion, right? And do something with somebody else that, that you're supposed to only do with your partner in passion. Um, okay, so that's kind of the, the flavor of this. Uh, and so uh, God says, um, I'm going to give Pinchas briti shalom, my covenant of peace. Nobody knows what this means. Nobody has any idea what this is about. My covenant of shalom, of peace. It says my pact of friendship. I don't know why it says friendship, right? It, it's very clear in the Hebrew. Look at the end of verse 12, right? I'm going to give him et briti shalom, my covenant of shalom, of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him. Now, here's what's important. Brit kihunat olam, a pact of priesthood for all time, because he took impassioned action for his God, thus making expiation for the Israelites. The name of the Israelite who was killed, the one who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, son of Salu, chieftain of a Simeonite ancestral house. So this was a chieftain. This is not just, you know, Plony Ben Plony, some, you know, Yeshiva Bucher from, you know, Munsi who did this. This is, this is a leader in the Israelite people who uh, engaged in this behavior. The na- name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Kuzbi, daughter of Zur. She was the tribal head of an ancestral house in Midian. So this is a leader of the Israelite people and a leader of the Midianite people. And then that's, these were leaders. They were setting a terrible example and were publicly executed for doing so. All right. So God says to Moshe, You shall go after the Midianites for they assailed you by the trickery they practiced against you because of the affair of Baal Peor and because of the affair of their kinswoman Cosby daughter of the Midianite chieftain who was killed at the time of the plague on account of Peor. This is the account of what happened with the Midianite women at Baal Peor. The men were, were uh, attracted into worshiping the Midianite God uh, because they were interested in the Midianite women. Okay. After the plague, God says to Moshe and Elazar, son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of the whole Israelite community. And here we have in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, We've done this before. Lift up the heads of every Israelite. Remember, counting in our, in our situation when it's by God is, is a holy, not holy, it's, it's important and it's supposed to make everybody feel valued and everybody feel important, the opposite of reducing them to a number. So they, uh, and they need to count how many people are able to bear arms. Remember right now they're getting ready to go up to conquer the promised land. This is a military campaign. We need to know how many people we have in our fighting force. All right, from 20 years and up, and then we get all these um, clans, right? And the Simeonites and God, and meaning G-A-D, the clan, parrots, blah, 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 blah. Where is what I'm looking for? So starting at verse 44, descendants of Asher. So we're looking at the tribe of Asher. Descendants of Asher by their clans. Of Imna, the clan of the Imnites. Of Ishvi, the clan of the Ishvites. Of Berea, the clan of Bereites. That makes sense. Um, of the descendants of Berea, here we have. And then we have verse 46, this very odd verse of Torah. Vishem bat Asher Sarach. And the name of Asher's daughter was Sarach. All right. Who are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the descendants of those who went down to Egypt, right? How long were we enslaved in Egypt? Over 400 years, yes? We're enslaved in Egypt 400 years. So Joseph, Jacob, and all those kids, right? All of Joseph's brothers, all of Jacob's sons, and his daughter Dina, they all went down to Egypt. These are the people getting ready to cross into the promised land 400 and some odd years later, right? So these are the descendants of 
Jacob's sons, uh, descendants of Jacob. What do we have here, though? Verse 46, Vishem bat Asher Sarach. And the name of Asher's daughter is Sarach. Okay. But we're not talking about the children. We're not talking about Jacob's grandchildren, right? The children of his sons. We're talking about the descendants 400 years later. So what's this doing here? Verse 46, Vishem bat Asher Sarach. What's up with that? Well, to know that, we have to go and see if we can figure out and find where, where do we see Sarach? Like, is it a misprint that she's really the granddaughter and the, and the scribes got it wrong? Well, let's see. Where do we first see Sarach? Who, by the way, is very famous in the Midrashic literature. That's why we're doing this. We're going to look at what happens to Sarach in the Midrashic literature. So whenever I say to you, in the Midrash, blah, 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 blah. In the Midrash, she has a much bigger, he has a much bigger role. How does that develop? What is that? What do I mean when I say that? And how do I know that? <laughs> right. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of how that happens, how Sarah becomes this, this character that for the rabbis, um, by the way, the story ends, I'll cut to the end. She's one of the nine, according to rabbinic tradition, that enter paradise without having died. That's how important Sarah is. And none of us know about her. All right. So let's go back to, we have to go back to Genesis. Asher's sons, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Berea, we just saw their clans mentioned in numbers, right? We just saw these names in numbers. Their descendants, these are the clans that come from Asher's sons and their sister, Sarah. Okay, so, so Genesis knows Sarah to be the sisters of Asher's sons, which means she is Asher's daughter. So the text in Numbers is not wrong. It's not a misprint that, that it, it was supposed to say, you know, descendant or granddaughter. Instead, she was the daughter of Asher. And here we have, right, and here, here it is in Numbers. The name of Asher's daughter was Sarah. There's our text, verse 46. There it is. If we look at Rashi on our verse, what does Rashi say? Vishem bat Asher Serach. He's commenting on the words, and the name of Asher's daughter was Serach. Why, why is that here? Why is it in Numbers 46? I mean, sorry, number, yeah, no, Numbers 26. Why is it here? Why? Because she still remained alive after all these long years. It exceptionally mentions her here. Meaning, if you're listing the descendants of Jacob's sons, there is no reason to mention his daughter here. Rashi for Rashi, that's an engraved invitation. Like what? The, the Torah can't make a mistake, God forbid. God doesn't make a mistake, God forbid. And so if this is revealed, there has to be a reason Serach appears here in Numbers when we're talking about the descendants. And he says she's named exceptionally, meaning of her generation, because she's still alive. She's still alive from the time of the descent into Egypt. All right. Let's look at some Midrashim, where the Midrash begins to develop this character. All right. So if we look in Genesis 45, we, we get this, um, this thing where Joseph, remember, has been taken into slavery. He's been there forever. It's time to bring Jacob down. The brothers have met Joseph. He's come out to them. He's going to bring his father down to Egypt for them to live there. The brothers in this uh, pasuk, in this sentence, are, are talking about telling their father that Jacob is alive. I mean, telling their father that Joseph is alive. And they told him, quote, Joseph is still alive. Yes, he is ruler over the whole land of Egypt. And what happened to Yaakov in that moment? His heart went numb, for he did not believe them. All right, so the Midrash wants to know, what is his heart went numb? Did his heart stop? Did he have a stroke? 
did his heart stop for a second and he passed out? Like what, what does it mean? His heart went numb and he did not believe for, he did not believe them. Right. It's key means it's causative, right? His heart went numb because they told him something absolutely, literally incredible, right? Something unbelievable that shocked him. So the Midrash picks up on this. The Midrash has to explain this. This is too good for the Midrash to leave alone, right? The writers of the Midrash want to know what's going on. All right, so he, there it is in Hebrew, what they say, and it's, it's lovely Hebrew, and it's much clearer in the Hebrew. All right. What, what does it say in, in Sefer HaYashar in the Midrash? When Joseph had finished giving them his orders, he turned and went back into Egypt and the sons of Jacob went to the land of Canaan in joy and in happiness to their father. And when they came to the boundaries of the land, they said to one another, what shall we do in bringing this matter before our father? For if we imparted to him suddenly and tell him all about it, he will be greatly astounded at our words and he will refuse to listen to us. And then they went on until they approached their houses. They met Sarah coming towards them. And the damsel, of course, was exceedingly beautiful and wise and a skilled player on the harp. And they called her and she came unto them and she kissed them. And they took her and gave her a harp saying to her, go, we pray you before our father and sit down before him and strike his harp and speak unto him according to these words. And they instructed her concerning what she had to say. And she hastened unto Jacob and she sat down before him. And she sang and she played beautifully upon the harp. And she sang in the sweetness of her voice, Joseph, my uncle is alive. And he reigns over all the land of Egypt. He is not dead. And she often repeated these words. So she sang it again and again and again. And Jacob heard her words and it pleased him greatly. And when he heard her sing it twice and three times, the heart of Jacob was possessed by joy through the sweetness of her voice and the spirit of God came over him. And he knew that all her words were true. And Jacob blessed Sarah for singing these words before him. And he said, my daughter, may death never prevail against you forever, for you have revived my spirit. Only repeat this song once before me, for you have caused me gladness with your words. And she sang once more the same words and Jacob listened and he was pleased and he rejoiced and the spirit of God came over him. And while he was yet speaking with her, his sons came before him with horses and chariots and royal garments and servants running before them. And Jacob arose and went to meet them and he saw his sons dressed in royal garments and all the good things that Joseph sent unto them. And he said to them, And they said to him, be informed that our brother Joseph is alive, that he rules over all the land of Egypt. And it is he who has spoken unto us all that we have told you. And Jacob heard all the words of his sons and his heart fainted, for he believed them not until he saw all that Joseph had given them and all that Joseph has sent along with them and all the signs he had spoken of unto them. And they unpacked everything. um, And Jacob knew that what they had spoken was the truth. And Jacob was greatly rejoiced on account of his son. And he said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. In another version of this same Midrash, it says that Sarah waits until Yaakov is in prayer. And then she takes her lyre. And as he's in prayer, standing in this moment of vulnerability and self-reflection, she starts to sing these words to him. Right, that Joseph is in Egypt and he's alive. But in that Midrash, she, she, she comes up with three very short phrases. Yosef b'mitzrayim, yildulo al-birkayim, menashe ve'efrayim. Yosef b'mitzrayim, Joseph's in Egypt. Yildulo al-birkayim, born to him on his knees, were menashe and Ephraim. So she has this three-verse rhyme, this poem that she uses, and it kind of seeps like it does. It seeps into Yaakov's consciousness. And so he's in this vulnerable moment of reflection and meditation and prayer. She starts singing on the lyre, Yaakov b'mitzrayim, yildulo al-birkayim, menashe ve'efrayim. And it starts to kind of get into Yaakov's unconscious. 
because what they're afraid of is shocking Yaakov to death. That just coming and telling him that his son is alive, right, is going to shock him and then he'll have a stroke. He'll have a heart attack. Something terrible will happen. So they have Serach go and sing to him. They have Serach go serenade him. And she's young at this point because obviously she's, she's going to live 400 years. She's young and she goes and she is wise and beautiful. And so it, it, how do we see her wisdom? For some of the tradition, we see her wisdom in that she waits for him to be in prayer. And in other ways, we see her wisdom and that she knows she has to approach this subject carefully. And she knows better than to just come in and go, okay, here's the front page of the Egyptian Gazette. Look who's there, Joseph, right? So she knows that she needs to figure out a way to do this that's careful. So, so this is a, this, I, I ordered a, a book just so I could read the article on Sarah Achbat Asher. So I ordered this book, Torah of the Mothers. And in that book is an article by Rachel Edelman called Sarah Bat Asher, Poet, Songstress, Woman of Wisdom. And she says in her article, Serach Bat Asher is the oracular messenger of truth. Like Orpheus, she plays the role of a poet who resurrects the dead, asserts the truth of, of uh, Joseph never having died. Sorry, it didn't copy exactly right. She allows Jacob to imagine another poss- uh, possible in the alternative narrative to Joseph was torn by a beast, thereby, thereby enabling Jacob to live. For it is not Joseph but Jacob, who bore a kind of death, um, which was the exile of the divine word. So there's a midrash that says prophecy left Jacob the moment he was told Joseph was to- Joseph died. And when he utters the word, Joseph was torn by a wild beast. He has confirmed the reality that Joseph is dead. And once that happens, once he says out loud, my son was torn by a wild beast, he now gives that reality expression and, and prophecy leaves him. And so, um, so what, what uh, Rachel Edelman is saying is it's Jacob that, sh- that Serach enables to live with her poetry. She's resurrecting the dead, meaning part of Jacob had died when he admitted that his son Joseph was in fact dead because because the the boys never said that the sons never said that to Jacob they just show him the cloak in blood remember they don't say Joseph's dead it's Yaakov who pronounces Joseph as dead so he dies a certain kind of death in that moment says the Midrashic literature and it is Serach who resurrects Jacob by giving him back the belief that Joseph is in fact alive. So I think that's very interesting. And of course, the poetic justice to that is that Yaakov says to her, may death never touch you, the one who brought my son back to life. Sarah says Aviva Zorenberg in her book, The Beginning of Desire, Sarah has not done as the brothers asked, introduced him gradually to the new reality so that his life is not in danger. She has sung the words of unbearable desire to the music of longing and recollection. And she has invited Jacob to remember a world in which despair and hope, discontinuity and continuity are interlaced in the poetry of his prayers. Isn't that gorgeous? It's like Heschel. It's like one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. I have no idea what it means. <laughs> but she's invited Jacob to remember a world in which despair and hope, discontinuity and continuity are interlaced in the poetry of his prayers. So Zornberg says Sarah waits till he's in prayer so that she can introduce something that is completely discontinuous into that mode that he's in, because in that mode, in poetry and in prayer, we are able to, to, um, to interlace discontinuity and continuity, despair and hope, life and death.
All right. Any reactions? Mehmet. Question, um, Amy. What does asher mean? Uh, osher, happiness. Happiness? Is it the same when you say the blessings, asher, kiddushanu, bemitzvotal? No. In that case, it is uh, it just the word that or which. And my, and my other question would be Sarah. It, etymologically, are Sarah and Sarai related? Very interesting. So uh, Sarai becomes Sarah, which originates from the word princess. Sarah is actually uh, sin, resh, chet. So it's actually Sarah. And so, the, and, but I love it that you're asking the, the meaning of the name of Sarah. And Sarah means that which hangs over, that which is extra, that which remains. It kind of reaches past what's needed, right, to something else. So the, I'm wondering if it's coincidental. To- so I, I think that it's Very not, it's not related in, in to Sarah. I don't think it's related to Sarah. Um, because Sarai's origins go back to Mesopotamia, very early Mesopotamia. Um, if you look at the word used when the parochet is made, the, the curtain for the Mishkan, um, the fabric that, was, that, that reached over the Ark was the Serach, right? The, the extension, the remnant that is more than what's needed, that extends, right, past. So the train, if you will like behind a wedding dress or, you know, so it's that, it's that extra. Um, so Sarah is a bit extra. And so Natasha's asking, would you say it's like a veil? Interesting. So a veil is used to cover. Um, she, she, I guess Sarah would be what's left on the floor of a veil. Like what's not needed to actually veil the object, but what, what's extra of that fabric that doesn't do that. And Richard Rajay says, or a canopy, right? So yeah, so that which covers, but that which hangs down the sides would be the serach, you know, or that or that pools on the floor is the serach, is what's extra that's not there to do the job. It's just what's extra, not just. I mean, it's what's extra. So um, so the rabbis wanted want to go there with her name to say she could have just come to him and told him gently that Joseph was alive. But she goes, she goes, she does extra. She waits till he's in prayer. She, she, and she comes to him and she sings, you right, this, this rhyming triplet to him that Yosef b'mitzrayim, you'll do all arberkaim, menashe ve'efrayim. And she keeps singing this and, and doing this until he finally on some other level gets it, right? That what she's saying is that Joseph is in fact uh, alive. Um, and so uh, she says in this article, Rachel Edelman says, the shift to an alternative view for Jacob, the real comfort or nechama that he gets, required a radically different mode of transmission, an, est- an aesthetic one, touching the visceral before the rational consciousness, where one's senses are struck by the beauty of the words before their meaning is scrutinized. Right, so she she kind of suggests this new reality, and it gets in there, and it had to be poetry, it had to be music, it had to be aesthetic for him to be able to receive it on that level first before understanding what the words meant, and then having to rationally deal with the big break in his reality that it was going to mean that Joseph was still alive after all these years. So she has the wisdom, right, to do that. All right, so we see her as wise and talented and, and gentle and respectful and creative and ex, she's a little extra, as my daughter would say. You know, Sarah, she's so extra. So she's, she's got this extra stuff going on. All right, so that's one, that's one characteristic of Sarah that we get from those particular set of midrashim around her telling Jacob that Joseph is alive. All right, let's look at the next place she's famous in the Midrashic tradition. And the next place that she's famous actually comes in the book of Exodus. So when Joseph is dying, Joseph says to his brothers, I die, but God will surely remember you. 
People, even if you don't read Hebrew, look at the first top line of the Hebrew and you'll see two words bolded. You see those two words in bold, right? Towards the end, towards the end of the Pasuk. You see two words in bold. What are those words? You know these words. Pakod Yifkod. Remember that word Pakad that we've studied together so many times? God will take note of you. This is also the word for counting, right? Tifkod. It is also the root of the word for giving someone a role, a tafkid, a job, right? So we talked about counting, being people, giving people a role, having them count. So Yosef says to, um, to his brothers, I'm going to die. The Elohim, but God, pakod yifkod etchem, will for sure, for sure, right? That's why it's repeated. It's, it's emphasis. We'll take note of you and we'll bring you up from this land, right? And he goes on, and Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel. So he made his brothers swear, God will surely take notice of you. And when God does, the oath is, you will take my bones with you. He makes them swear that. All right. And so Joseph dies being 110 years old. Okay. And his coffin, they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is Torah. That's from Torah. That's from Exodus. All right. But there's a tradition that takes these words, pakod yifkod, and says, this is code language. I love this. This is such a game. I love that you know that the rabbis are playing a game and this is their whole life is to play this game. And it's awesome what they do here. It's so fun. So pakod yifkod, pay, pay, right? Those two puz, pakod yifkod. So the, the repetition of pakad here, pay and pay. The beginning, right, of the word is pay. So, so the Midrash says he's not just getting an oath from his brothers here. He's giving them the code. You'll know it's time for you to go up from Egypt. You'll know redemption is at hand when pakod yifkod happens, when you get this language of pakod yifkod. That's where the Midrash goes. Because look at this. There was a secret sign handed down to the Israelites in Egypt a legacy left by Yaakov, who gave it to Yosef, and he again to his brother Asher, who handed it down to his daughter Sarah. She was blessed with longevity and was living when Moses made his appearance before Pharaoh. So she gets the secret. She gets the code from, so Jacob gives it to Joseph. Joseph, we just saw if you use the rabbinic imagination, Joseph just gave it to his brothers. The code, pakod yifkod. When you hear that, you know redemption is for real. It's happening. That was given to his brothers. Asher, one of his brothers, gave it to his daughter, Serach, this code. And she's still living when the time of Moshe going to Pharaoh happens. She survives from Genesis because we just saw that. The rabbis gave us that already as Midrash. She survives until the time of Moshe. So the tradition was that the one who appeared in Egypt as the messenger of God with the tidings of their redemption would use the word pakad, that God remembered, that God took notice of where they were and saw what was done to them in Egypt. Thus, they would know and believe that he was really sent by their God. Hence, we find that when Moshe uses the word pakod pakadity, which is what Moshe says in the book of Exodus, and not until then, the people believed that, the, that God looked upon their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's go look at that text. It happens in Exodus 4, verse 28. Moses told Aharon all the words of yod heh with which God sent him and all of the signs that God had instructed him. Moshe and Aharon went and gathered all the elders of the children of Israel. Aharon spoke all the words which yod heh had spoken to Moshe and performed the signs in the presence of the people. 
And the nation believed and listened because God remembered, pakad, right, at God's people. Where is the, where's the word though? Um, blah, 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 blah. So well, somehow I, I skipped putting in here the actual place. Moshe says the words, pakad, pakadity. God said, God has taken note. God has remembered this people. Moshe says that in Exodus. So he uses the code according to the rabbis. So, and when Moshe and Aaron came to the elders of Israel and made the signs before their eyes, they went to Sarah, bat Asher, and said to her, a man has come before us with these signs. Remember, his staff turns into a snake, right? And all that stuff. That's how he's going to prove that God sent him. She said, there is nothing to that man. They said, but he said, God will remember you. Pakod pakaditi. And she said, he is the man who will bring Israel out of Egypt. For I heard from my father, from my father, peh, peh, pakod yifkod. I heard from my father that when we hear peh, peh, pakod yifkod, these two pays, these doubling of the word that begins with peh, pakad, when we hear that, that means God's coming. Redemption is coming. That's what she says. So his signs, who cares? means nothing. But the fact that he used the code words, that means he's the guy. So she's the one that gives Moshe authority. They immediately believed in their God and God's emissary. As it says, the nation believed and listened because God pakadded the people. And so Rachel Edelman observes, he, Moshe, is continually anxious about his own ability to use language fluently and refers to himself on several occasions as aral sfataim, literally of uncircumcised lips. In contrast, Serach has a fluency with language, which allows the incredible to be credible, the unbelievable to be believed, both with Jacob and with the people now. This contrast is played out in this uh, midrash uh, in uh, Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. All right. So, so Moshe, who is super uncomfortable with language, who calls himself of uncircumcised lips. Remember, we've talked several times recently about what Moshe's concern is, is really his ability to convince anybody. It's not that he has a speech impediment. That's another Midrashic tradition. It's not so much that. When we've looked at the subtlety of this recently in our text, what we see is it's Moshe's inability to believe that he will be able to convince anybody. They won't listen to me. They won't believe me. Why should they believe it's you who sent me, right? That's what he's worried about. So he who is so worried about being able to convince anybody is set over and against. Who do they go to? They go to Serach to say, okay, this dude came and started throwing his staff around and it became a snake and then he did this and then he did that. And she's like, means nothing. And they said, okay, but what he said was, and she's like, ah, that's the indication. His speech, what he said convinces her. She's the one who analyzes speech. She is the one who uses speech with Yaakov. She's the one who's fluent. And she's the one who can hear in Moshe's speech that, yes, in fact, he's the one. When the people don't believe, right? The people aren't sure. The people don't know. They come to Sarah. And it's Sarah who hears Moshe's words and is convinced and believes because she knows the code from the ancestors. And the other thing that Edelman points out is that Moshe's the disconnected one right? Moshe's been cut off from his people. How? He's born to Yocheved and Amram, but he's taken away, right? At three months, he's put in the basket and he's taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. He's taken into the Egyptian palace. He's cut off from his people, from his tradition. And then he has to flee to Midian, right? Because he's a fugitive. He kills the taskmaster and flees to Midian. So again, he's living among foreign people. He's living in the house of, of, um, of uh, what's his chops? His father-in-law, 
Oh my God. Um, the high priest of Midian, right? And he marries Tipora, the daughter of the high priest. And then he goes to, then he gets this call at the burning bush from this crazy, invisible something called Yudhe Vave. And he's got to go confront Pharaoh. Who's going to, so he's been completely cut off from his people, which in some ways makes him the perfect emissary, right? For God, the perfect agent of this is someone who's living in the between spaces. Serach, says Rachel Edelman, is the exact opposite. She represents continuity. She represents the deep connection, the oral tradition, how art and music and poetry preserve the deepest truths of our tradition and are communicated from generation to generation. She is the the tie between all the way back to Yaakov being you know, being a granddaughter of Yaakov, all the way to this moment of Moshe and beyond. So w- we somehow have lost this connection to Sarah, who's the connection all the way back. So I want to restore um, that connection. So at least we're aware of her, at least we know this tradition, that it is Sarah who carries this deep, deep um, knowledge of the past, of what's happened, knows how to recognize in the present, how to use it, and then looks forward to and, and lives forward into actually having that become the new reality. So this fascinating figure. All right. So yes, thanks. Somebody who said <laughs> Jethro, Yitro, thank you people. I'm glad you pay attention so you know who he is. Um, so Richard Rajay says, is Sarah a type of matriarch in this increasingly patriarchal culture? And, and cause it's a huge amount of power that she has in, uh, legitimizing Moshe. Yes, I think so. And it's fascinating that they want to go there. Like, it's so interesting that yes, in this hugely patriarchal, you know, biblical tradition and into the rabbinic period, yes, they imagine a matriarch who Torah says nothing about. They don't have to make her anything. Torah just says, Sarah, you know, Barasher. That's it. So they choose. It's very interesting. Edelman and Zornberg, they, they note that it's very interesting that the rabbis choose to make Sarah this huge um, authority, that she's the one who legitimizes Moshe. She's the one who gives him the authority, who gives him authority in the eyes of the people. That's huge. That's a huge role. Is she Asher's daughter or stepdaughter? (laughs) All right, Richard Siegel. Uh, So there's a discussion in the literature that she is not Asher's daughter directly, that Asher married her mother and that she is her mother's daughter by a previous marriage. Uh, And so in that case, she is Asher's stepdaughter. So very good. I don't know where you found that, but way to go. Um, So yes, so she is in some cases his stepdaughter, in some cases his daughter. Um, In either case, she, he chooses to trust her with the code of Pakad Yifkod. Mehmet, you want to say something else? Um, uh, Do I get it right? She is a girl, right? She's a Midianite. Who? Uh, Serah. No. No? Okay. No. Not, not that I know of. There, there may be. Okay. Some, yeah. no, she, no. She's the daughter of Asher. She's Israelite. Okay. She's okay. of the house of Jacob. Um, so Bubby says, and bomb. I thought Jews didn't do that. Yeah. Well, they do. When they live in Egypt, when they're the prince of Egypt, when you want to make sure that you are honoring the body and the, the possibility for, right, the, the soul to continue uh, in Egypt if you are Egyptian. So um, this is a this is an example we have here of how we tend to think of current Jewish law as having always been in place and always having been the Jewish ideal and the Jewish ultimate value around something. Not true, right? Including, by the way, intermarriage. Joseph is married to Osnat, who is Egyptian. He has two Egyptian kids, right, with her. Moshe marries Sipora, the high priest, the daughter of the high priest of Midian. We can assume, if we look at Mesopotamian culture, that she was a priestess. 
So not only are they marrying out, they're marrying high ranking out women, right? So, so all those things that we tend to think of as anathema and, oh my gosh, that doesn't happen. That's not a Jewish value. Uh, the tradition evolves over a long period of time, including, um, including this idea of, of marrying someone who's not quote unquote Jewish. We don't have Jewish yet, right? In the, in the Torah, we have Israelite. So Mehmet says they're marrying in, <laughs> right? So that, that, there you go. So tradition has it. Okay, that's fine. They're becoming, they're becoming part of the Israelite family by marrying in to, to the Israelite uh, culture, not in Joseph's case, but in some of these others like Moshe. And then the tradition turns against intermarriage, right? And now you just saw Mehmet be the embodiment of a progressive contemporary Jewish view, which is my view, which is not that Jews are marrying out. It's that other people are marrying in to the Jewish people. And I tell that to people when they say, okay, we want to know if you'll do our wedding because my partner's not Jewish. I'm like, not a problem. They're going to be part of the Jewish people one way or another. So I would like to talk about making that official. If you're going to get married, let's talk about making it official that they join the Jewish people. Right. And then we'll have a Jewish wedding. And wouldn't that be lovely? But like, right, if they're unchurched, only if they're unchurched, obviously, if they're if they're churched, if they're practicing another religion, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but if someone's unchurched, just not Jewish, it's like, OK, well, you're marrying in. <laughs> right. So let's talk about what that looks like. Let's talk about how we can make that more comfortable for you. Let's talk about learning. Let's talk about whatever. Let's talk about if you're interested then joining the team. Like let's so um, because that's the way J- Jewish culture has always been informed by the, the cultures we live around and who marry in. Um, and so let's just be open and affirming, right. About, about people marrying in, bring a lot of things to the Jewish people. And, and if we do it right, then they create Jewish homes and Jewish children and the perpetuation of um, those things that we are so guarding against when we right, want to keep people from marrying out. Amy? Yes. Hi. Uh, I, I, going back a little bit, I really, really was struck uh-huh. by the manner in which Sarah gently dealt mm-hmm. with Yaakov. And the lesson that that has psychologically for all of us in terms of how we deal with other people. I I wonder if the rabbis took that because of all of this that you've discussed, that to me was the most powerful. Is it she waits till the way she does it is by singing and prayer, you know, by praying that, that there's, I think it's in Turkey a vote, you know, don't talk to somebody when they're standing next to their dead that in terms of dealing with people, we just shouldn't just hit them over the head because we want to express it, but that we need to understand how they will hear what we're saying and do it in a loving, gentle way. And did, did the rabbis take that somewhere? Um, I, it's, <clears throat> excuse me. It's more the commentary on the Midrash, right? So it's more people, people studying the Midrash and saying what the rabbis are trying to get at is exactly what you're saying. The rabbis are just a little more terse about it. It's obvious to them what you're saying, right? It's other people that elucidate that that's important. The rabbis bring the midrash. <laughs> like they could have had her deliver him a telegram. They could have had her, you know, put it on neon outside his tent. They are the ones who create the midrash that says she sang it to him and in poetry, right? So they understand that that is that and that and the one where she waits till he's in prayer. So they get it. It's, it's we who like you just did need to highlight that. Like, what do we take from that? And I think you're totally right that the rabbis are saying one of the things that made her wise, because beauty doesn't have much to do with that. <clears throat> what makes her wise is her decision to do it that way. Right? It's her, her waiting. She decides to wait when till he's in prayer. And then how the mode she decides to tell him is to gently sing this rhyming triplet to him and over and over. So it seeps in slowly that if we were more gentle, more creative, more patient in when we talk to somebody, when we need to deliver a rupture, something that is unbelievable 
um, then we have the possibility of it becoming credible, right? Edelman was saying she takes what's impossible and makes it credible, both in the case of Jacob and in the case of Moses. And, and we live in a time where people don't want to believe each other. And when I try to tell you my reality, how I see the world right now, right? If I'm talking to somebody who, who is on the other side of pick an issue these days, because um, they're all the same, they're all divided the same way, and it's political, right? Our divide becomes political no matter what the issue is, whether it's science, whether it's demonstrations, whether it's voting rights, whatever it is, it all becomes political and we know down which lines. So if I'm talking to someone on the other side of that divide and trying to convince them of something that to them is incredible, it is not believable, then how do I do that? And we're stuck. We are not doing it very well. We are beating each other over the heads. We have competing news networks. We slander this one. This one tweets. That one responds. This one writes an op-ed in the New York Times. This one says it's all, t- you know, bull, bull. And so we, we're not getting anywhere. To your question, I mean, to your point, Bert, I think one of the things that the Midrash comes to teach us and Sarah herself comes to teach us is Sometimes we have to wait and figure out, A, the, the time that we can approach somebody, but also the mode in which we approach people. How can we approach people in a way that makes what seems impossible to believe somehow credible? To do it gently, to do it maybe aesthetically, to do it slowly, to let it slowly start to sink in. I don't know. I don't know exactly how to apply it, but I think that's what the rabbis are getting at. And we could certainly use a bit more figuring out how to communicate differently and better, right, in in our time. Sarah Moskowitz had a comment, I think. What I wanted to say was that Sarah had a trustable memory that for some reason... She had earned people's belief that she remembered well. And that was her power. So lovely that Sarah points out it's not just how she did what she did. It's that, and that they went to her and she knew the code. It's that they knew to go to her. Why go to Sarah Barasher? Who's she? She was trusted. She was already in authority. She was already, Sarah's reminding us and pointing out, she was already one who was recognized as having a memory that could be trusted. Absolutely correct. And the rabbis note this. And one of the things Edelman points out is that this is a time of, if you'll remember, I'm glad you brought it up, Sarah. If you'll remember what time are we living in, a new king arose over Egypt who what? Who did not know Joseph in a time of disremembering, in a time of disremembering causing oppression, in a time of disjunction and disconnection and rupture, it was Sarah they knew to go to for continuity. They trusted Sarah's memory. They trusted the transmission of the tradition orally to her, and they trusted her interpretation. And so this, this is super important, exactly, that the rabbis give her an incredible authority that they knew to go to her because they trusted her account. They trusted her memory. They trusted her connection. They trusted her as a source of continuity in a time of great rupture and discontinuity. So, um, so this is, you know, for us, you know, a teaching about how it is we might can... Uh, figure out how we can serve as agents of, um, of continuity. So Ed is saying it's interesting that the rabbis had a woman deliver the message. Women have been taught forever that when they deliver a message to a man, do it gently because men can't handle direct confrontation. And I'm thinking he's saying, and particularly from women. So be careful how you speak. Very interesting. So that the rabbis seem to be aware that maybe she's smart on many counts, right? That, that this is the best way to do it, but also that she's not dumb, 
right? She's, she knows how to approach him. She knows how to approach this, this topic, this subject um, uh, that's going to be confrontational to his, to his reality. All right, I want to close with this uh, reading. Um, and uh, wait, but I have to share my screen with you, don't I? Okay, so when is all this happening, by the way? This is all happening right before they're going to go into the promised land, right after, um, right? So they, they're, they're living in uncertain times. They don't know what it's going to look like in the promised land. Like they don't know. So let's, let's look at this commentary that says, like us today, the Israelites are living in uncertain times as their journey in the desert will soon come to an end after 40 years of wandering. The men who had worshipped the Midianite gods reflect the angst of the Israelite people who wonder what life will be like in the promised land, right? So them worshipping Midianite gods in this, in this incident is really, he says, this commentator says about, like, they're uncertain because they're about to enter the promised land. How's it, how's it going to be? And so this act is an act of just the uncertainty of all that. How will Joshua and Eliezer lead as his successors to Moshe and Aaron? The Israelites then take another census, a counting of men able to bear arms, as we saw, uh, as they will soon be at war. However, a census is, a much more, is much more than a counting of numbers or demographic information in today's world. The Hebrew for take a census literally means lift the head, as we saw. The people were unsettled and unsure about life. It was a time of uncertainty and anxiety about entering the new reality of life in the promised land. My guess is that those ancient Israelites felt many of the emotions and had similar thoughts as we do today. When one listens to people and empowers them, everyone is included and everyone counts. Questions of inclusiveness and human dignity, the uplifting of all human beings, continue to challenge us today. Although we are still living in the midst of COVID-19, many people are questioning what the new normal will look like once we have a vaccine. However, nothing will inoculate the economy to immediate recovery. It will take years. The pain of nearly 40 million unemployed Americans will not magically go away. The long-term effects of this recession will not recede. The economic inequality continues to be on the rise. And he quotes Jonathan Sachs, a world in which the few prosper and many starve offends our deepest sense of fairness and human solidarity. Disparities of this magnitude, vast concentrated wealth, alongside widespread suffering is intolerable. George Floyd's murder ignited national protests and calls for racial equality, police reform, and social and economic equality. Will these flames of justice soon become history like the unrest after the assassination of um, Reverend King or after the Rodney King beating? What keeps a a movement alive? How do we keep marching toward a world where black lives are really treated as though they matter? Thus, the question to ask is, does this Torah portion help in any way as we grapple with and emerge from our health and social pandemics? I believe it does. The major theme after the census is how the people will relate to God in the promised land. In ancient times, they did it through animal sacrifice, but of course, that is not our way of shaping a spiritual life. During this time of our transitions, will our institutions ask the right, honest, and difficult questions about how to evolve in a way that it will track those who are unaffiliated, improved listening to those who are not connected to the Jewish community, and really hearing their stories of alienation might allow us to reconstitute the Jewish community in ways that are even more meaningful and inclusive. People are yearning for meaning, spiritual connection, and community. Our ancestors who were about to end their journey and enter the promised land had to change and evolve. It is abundantly clear that we have to do the same in order to enter a promised land of a just and equal society. So I, uh, and I would say that, and I want to include Sarah in this, we have to be connected to tradition. We have to have memory and we have to have the truth that survives all the vicissitudes of human life and conditions and suffering. And we have to figure out how to maintain that connection and how to communicate it to ourselves and to others in ways that are artistic and creative and, and new and gentle. And, um, and we have to be connected both to, to evolving and changing and meeting what the times require, as, as this piece by Rabbi Lee Bysel says. Um, and, and we have to do that, I believe, as a good Reconstructionist, um, with a real connection, honoring, and respect 
for the past and the wisdom uh, of our ancestors, uh, which has sustained us through as a Jewish people, so many incredibly difficult, uh, difficult moments. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.